Good afternoon, everyone, and greetings to all our brethren all around the world. It's a beautiful Sabbath day here in Charlotte, and we hope our brethren all around the world are enjoying the Sabbath as well. Some years ago, I asked my wife, what did she like most about God's creation? You can ask yourself the same question. My wife and I are often impressed as we walk around the Charlotte area in our neighborhood at the glorious cloud formation, just seeing the reflection and the light coming through the clouds is just incredible. Uh, there is no greater artist than the creator. I like sunsets. I've photographed many different sunsets, and my brother-in-law and I have kind of a friendly competition in uh, photographing the most beautiful sunsets. When we look at the heavens, we can see how glorious they are. The last couple nights, you may have seen a beautiful harvest moon uh, showing that the feast is just one month away. And then there are the animals. We have uh, five neighborhood cats that come over to our house virtually every morning, which my wife loves, and I don't have to be concerned about caring for them. <laughs> and looking out the, the backyard, we're praying out the back window towards the woods to see the little yellow birds and the squirrel, and on at least two occasions see some deer out uh, in the backwoods. When you take a look at God's creation, it is just awesome and just amazing to see that. To even see a spider weave a web and the beautiful configuration. It's just God put it into that spider, the architectural uh, method of weaving that web. Let's turn to Matthew, the 18th, uh, 18th chapter. But one of the greatest creations that we are all impressed with is a newborn baby. And Jesus talked about the very attitude of a child and how that relates to the kingdom of God. Matthew 18 and verse 3. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted to become as little children, you will in no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, who humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. When we walk around the airports and we see uh, mothers, uh, which always astounds me, that here's a mother with uh, three little children and she's at, he, she has them at the airport, take them on a plane. I don't know how they do it. Uh, they have strength and uh, energy as young mothers to, to care for three or four children and take them on an airplane. But when you see those little babies, you look at them, you just cannot but be endeared to that little child well, most of the time, that is, <laughs> when it has this little smile. And, of course, I'll try to, on an airplane, I'll try to wave to a little child and get it to smile back at me, and it makes me feel like I've uh, connected. But what do you believe is God's greatest cre creation? Jesus' instruction regarding the humility of a child gives us an indication. Humble children are very trusting. How trusting toward God are you? And what is God's greatest creation? Is it the mountains? Is it the universe? Those awesome galaxies that are moving out into space at 100 million miles an hour? What is the masterpiece of God's creation? The sermon title is God's Greatest Creation. Let's first of all understand that God is the creator. Let's turn to Job, the 38th chapter. Job 38. We know in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But did God create anything before the physical universe? 
Job 38 and verse 1. Then the Eternal answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? We all have human knowledge, but can we evaluate human knowledge with God's spiritual knowledge? Gird up now your loins like a man, for I will demand of you and answer you me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if you have understanding. And you can ask yourself that same question. Here Job was a a very successful individual. He was a great leader, a very wealthy individual, very knowledgeable. And yet God said, Job, uh, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? And we can ask ourselves that question as well. We were not here. We were down the line, so to speak. Yet God has a great purpose for us. Who has laid the measures thereof, if you know, and who has stretched the line on it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened, or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Um, Perhaps Job was a great uh, contractor. Maybe he was a great engineer and a builder. And yet... Could he answer the question of the construction of planet Earth? How is that staying out there in space? Now notice verse 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Yes, there were sons of God before the physical universe. There were angels, angelic beings that God had created. Glorious beings. And when you read Revelation, the fourth chapter, you get a sense of God's throne. And here are these awesome creatures. Here are cherubim. Here are the four living creatures. And here are these spirit animals, if you will, or beings with a head of an ox and a head of a a face of a a man and a face of a, a lion. And all these glorious creatures and about God's thrones just myriads and myriads of angels and thunder and lightning and this glorious sea of glass before God's throne, of crystal and rainbow about God's throne. Just how glorious it is. What an awesome creation that is. And here John, the Apostle John, was able to see that in vision. And yet God is kind enough to share that vision with us. So we have an insight into his very throne. So God is the creator. Let's turn to Isaiah, the 40th chapter, Isaiah 40. Of course, the evolutionists and uh, others don't think of God as the creator. They think that this all just happened by accident, that all this glorious universe just happened by accident, and yet they cannot answer the question, as one of our professors wrote, Carl Sagan, one time, and uh, about the uh, where did the laws of nature, the physical laws, laws of chemistry, come from? And uh, Carl Sagan said, that's a meaningless question. Well, he didn't have an answer, so you have to label it as a meaningless question when you realize, as most scientists, Stephen Hawking and others, that when the universe became into being, what was with it? All the laws that had to do with expansion, with physics, with motion, all of those laws had to be there at the very moment of creation. Where did they come from? They cannot answer that question. So God says here in Isaiah, the 40th chapter, verse 26, Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who has created these things, that brings out their host by number. 
He calls them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one fails. So, not one little asteroid or one large galaxy is going to escape from God's control. He sustains the universe by the word of his power, tells us in Hebrews, the first chapter, talking about Christ. He goes on in verse 28, Have you not known, have you not heard that the everlasting God, the eternal, the creator of the ends of the earth, faints not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. And here, of course, is hope and a promise for those of us who feel weak at times. He gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. They that wait on the eternal shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's a promise from the Creator. God is creating in us and in this universe a purpose and a plan that revolves around His family. We'll see a little more about that later. Turn to Psalm 104, verse 30. I won't go into the whole a matter of the recreation, but just to touch on this one verse, we know that one of those angels that God created had, uh, of course, had free moral agency, and that angel, that cherubim, who was Hillel, also called in Latin uh, Lucifer, was whelmed. He grew up with pride and and, uh, vanity, and he rebelled against God. And apparently the whole universe and particularly the earth, had to be renewed. And so in Psalm 104, in verse 30, it says, You send forth your spirit. They are created. You renew the face of the earth. So there came a point in time when God had to renew the earth because of the chaos from destruction of Satan the devil. Let's turn to Genesis, the first chapter. Genesis 1. So God renewed the face of the earth, and that's described in the first chapter of Genesis. And on the sixth day, God said in verse 26 of Genesis 1, Elohim said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now, there are some theologians that say God does not have form or shape. And yet, why is it then that God said, let us make man not only in our image, but also after our likeness? God describes himself as having eyes, arms, legs. So God is does have form and shape. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So we understand what the Father looks like because we understand what Jesus looked like. We are made in the shape and the likeness of God, but we are lacking something. And what is that that we're lacking? We're lacking God's character. We're lacking God's nature. So God has a plan that will create in us that very character and that nature. We are the masterpiece of God's creation. But it takes time. Now, there is a uh, magazine that came out here recently, and part of that, that process of God creating in us His character is the New Covenant. I'll just touch on that briefly. 
You can read about that in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. And God writes His laws on our hearts and on our minds. God's commandments, His laws, reveal His nature of love. We love Him, we love our neighbors. And so God writes those laws on our hearts and on our minds. And it's not, as I've mentioned before, that we are robots and automatons, and it just kind of does that with a snap of the finger, and all of a sudden we kind of mesh in with this blob of love. No, that's not how it works. We meditate on each of the Ten Commandments. We practice each of the Ten Commandments. That's how we internalize them, become a part of us. Where he says, the, the good understanding have all they that do his commandments. Psalm 111 and verse 10. Well, this one magazine, some of you may be uh, familiar with it. This is the September-October 2006 issue of uh, the Plain Truth magazine. Uh, $3.50 if you'd like to buy it. The heading on here is Christianity without religion. Now, is that the biblical value that all Christians should attain? That is, Christianity without religion. I, I just wonder if the authors of that particular magazine or that particular logo, that theme, have even read of James, the first chapter, if you want to turn back to James 1. Because as a part of our growing in godly character, God gives us this admonition of Christianity with his religion. James 1, verse 27, pure religion, is it Christianity without religion? Uh, that's not what my Bible says. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to care for the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, of course, we were labeled as being legalistic because we wanted to do what God said in keeping his commandments. Well, there is a form of legalism, except the Protestants and those don't understand what biblical legalism is. I'll define it this way. Legalism is the attempt to keep the letter of the law by human effort rather than internalizing the spiritual law of love through the Holy Spirit. And when people try to keep the law through human effort as apart from the spiritual intent of the law, then they can become as the Pharisees that Jesus criticized in Matthew 23 and verse 23. But God wants us to have his character. There are four steps in character development. Mr. Armstrong made this clear in his book, The Mystery of the Ages. I don't uh, have a copy of that with me, but you can refer to pages 69 and 70 of uh, Mystery of the Ages by Herbert W. Armstrong. There are four steps to character development, as he outlined. <clears throat> One is the willingness and ability to understand right from wrong. We had this wonderful sermonette by Mr. Rod McNair about praying for a receptive heart. You need to have a willingness to learn right from wrong. How many people today don't care what's right or wrong? Or they establish their own righteousness. In other words, it's all right for me to have illicit sex. It's all right for me to abuse drugs. It's all right for me to, to lie and cheat and steal. That's their own righteousness. But God says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Mankind has, of course, been trying to establish his own righteousness and because he took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and not of the tree of life. 
So step number one is the willingness and ability to understand right from wrong. Are you really seeking the truth? Psalm 25, verse 4 and 5. We might turn there because it's so key in our attitudes of developing godly character. Psalm 25, verse 4. It's this teachable attitude that we heard about in the sermonette and in uh, Mr. Meredith's announcements. Show me your ways, O Eternal. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you do I wait all the day. What a wonderful, teachable attitude that is. Do you have that attitude? Are you asking God to teach you? Or are you trying to teach someone the wrong way of life? Are you trying to argue with God? Or are you saying, look, your will be done, not my will. I want to be teachable and I want to learn. I appreciated what Mr. McNair was saying about uh, learning from uh, a sermon, regardless of whether it's well-prepared or not well-prepared, because God's Spirit can touch your heart and mind with something that is said by the minister that connects with your character, that connects with your experience, that connects with something you've studied in the Bible. On several occasions, I've had people tell me, well, look, do you know you said this in your sermon? And, you know, it helped me. And I oh, well, that was just kind of a throwaway sentence in my sermon. And yet that seemed to connect with that individual and help him or her because God's Spirit was working with that individual's mind. And that's what we want to do, of course, in the willingness and ability to find out what's right and wrong. And, of course, there are those gray areas, areas that seem to be um, not so clear of what is really right and what is really wrong. And you have to pray about it and ask God to guide you and to reveal, you, reveal it to you. But God tells us what's right. <clears throat> His righteousness is in the Bible from beginning Genesis to Revelation. And we seek His righteousness and not our own. Now, there, remember the other part of that step, the willingness and ability to understand. Little tiny children cannot understand the ability. They don't have the ability to understand right from wrong. Those who have had some kind of brain damage may not be able to understand right from wrong. And so they will have to wait until they're healed or the white throne judgment or little children grow up to the age of accountability to be able to understand right from wrong. So that's step number one. Step number two is the commitment to choose living righteously. Now, uh, people know, many that we ministers have counseled, they know, well, I, I know that I should be uh, not be uh, stealing from my tithes. I know I should uh, not be... Uh, uh, working on the Sabbath. I know I should be doing something that is uh, what I'm not doing in God's plan. They have not committed to do what is right. And that's the struggle for many in the world. It's a struggle for me before I came into the church. A struggle to commit to go God's way or to continue to just go my own way and do my own thing. So the second step is making that deep commitment to live righteously after you find out what is right and what is wrong to actually make that commitment. You know, an analogy, of course, is uh, one analogy is the matter of smoking. You're smoking cigarettes, and you have determined in your own mind by studying the Bible that smoking is detrimental to your health, your lungs. You've seen that scientifically, but it's also 
has to do with lust. If you lust after that cigarette, you are, uh, you are committing uh, covetousness. You are lusting. You are going after an idol in the heart. And, of course, God says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you know, that, know you not that you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. And so we know those who've had struggle over cigarettes. I, uh, <laughs> I, was, I don't know where it was, at a grocery store or somewhere. This one lady was, was outside the store smoking, and she said, Oh, I just I wonder, how could I, how could I stop smoking? And uh, I thought, well, the way to do it is the way I did. You know, at age 12, just smoke a whole pack of cigarettes at one time, get deathly sick, and then you won't smoke another one for the rest of your life. And that's what happened to me. But we don't all have the same experience. But you, you have to make that commitment, am I going to do what's right? So once you make that commitment, then the temptations will come along. The third way, third step, is to resist all temptations. Number two is to make a commitment to do what's right. Number three is to resist all temptations that come along. So now you've committed to stop smoking. You've thrown away your cigarettes. And now someone comes along, your friends, your, your say, come on over to our house. We've got a nice party here. And they're all smoking and they're offering you, here, here's free cigarettes. Hey, take a whole pack. You know, just. And so what do you do? You have to resist the temptations that come along. And, of course, what God says in terms of uh, uh, sexual immorality, flee fornication. So we have to make those commitments. And then thirdly, we resist the temptations to compromise. It's like lifting weights. You know, you lift weights, you build muscles, you resist temptation, you build spiritual muscles, spiritual character. And fourthly, you practice righteous living until it becomes habit, until it becomes internalized, it becomes a part of you. You now, it's not a problem anymore. It's not a problem for me, for example, to... Uh, I'm not tempted to smoke. If someone offered me a cigarette, you know, it's not a temptation to me. But there are other things that might be tempting to me. And I have to know my weaknesses and pray about them and strengthen that weakness into a character strength rather than a character flaw and a character weakness. Well, let's take a look at a couple individuals in the Bible who had weak and strong character. Let's turn to uh, Hebrews, the 12th chapter. I think you know about this individual. He had a weak character. In fact, he gave up precious wealth and actually a whole benefit because he was hungry. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, God says in verse 14, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without no man shall see the Lord looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. Is this a man of strong character? No, he was weak-willed. He was weak in character. He compromised. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it, that is, sought the birthright with tears. So here was one man who just didn't have the character to just go another few hours without food, but gave away his whole birthright 
all the, the heritage that was to be given him just for a morsel of meat, as it says. Now, <clears throat> let's turn to uh, Genesis, the 29th chapter. So that's an example of a, a weak individual. Uh, Genesis 29, we have the example of someone who exerted strong character, even as a young man. <clears throat> Genesis, the 29th chapter. Joseph was sold as a slave by his brothers. His father was mourning over him and uh, just couldn't be consoled because of the loss of, of Joseph. They, he thought that he had been uh, eaten by a wild animal with the blood on his many-colored coat. And so in Genesis 29, um, I'm sorry, it's not uh, the correct chapter. Uh, it must be... Uh, well, let's go to Genesis 40, 45. Genesis 45. That must have been 39, sorry. Yes, Joseph. Uh, Genesis uh, 39, not 29. <clears throat> verse 9. Uh, here, he was working for Potiphar, who was a wealthy man, and Potiphar's wife lusted after Joseph, and she tried to seduce him. And Joseph is arguing with her, verse 9, There is none greater in this house than I. Neither has he kept back anything from me, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph knew that adultery was sin. And he uh, had the strength to resist that temptation. He had to show respect to his master's wife. And But let me just comment here a little bit, you have to be careful that you don't get into a uh, discussion about the issue, because the, whoever is trying to convince you is going to talk and talk and then argue and pretty soon wear you down if you let yourself in for a longer discussion on the topic. I doubt that Joseph kept talking about it, but he resisted her day after day. And then verse uh, 21 um, of course, you know the rest of the story. She falsely accused him, um, <clears throat> and he was put in prison. Now, that was another tragedy for Joseph in his life. Here he is, sold as a teenage teenager, as a slave. Uh, God gives him favor in uh, Potiphar's house, and then he's put in prison unjustly. Verse 21. But the Eternal was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So even though he, uh, that is Joseph, uh, went to prison for his character and his character development, God was still with him. It was a test. It was a trial for Joseph to be in prison all that time. Let's turn to chapter 45. And, of course, you know the rest of the story. After several years of uh, this test and trial and being in prison, <clears throat> Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream, and he was made king under Pharaoh, that is, the leader of the empire under Pharaoh. Uh, Genesis 45 and verse 5. Now his brothers came to him who had sold him into Egypt. And he said to his brothers, he finally showed himself to him, and I've... I've you know, this is a very emotional story for me. I've read this I don't know how many times. I probably have shed tears about five or six times that I've read this story. And I've uh, seen the movie, Joseph, uh, which is a very good movie. Yeah, there are two 
of objectionable scenes in that movie. Mr. Randy Gregory showed it to us when we visited up there in uh, Milwaukee one time. And uh, maybe we can get that for the church sometime. A very good movie on this whole story of Joseph. But uh, Joseph, of course, tested his brothers. And now he reveals himself to him. And what does he say to them? Well, you skunks, you sold me as slaves, you have had it. Well, he, he did put them through some real trials and uh, tests, but he said, Don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. Now, God knew their carnality. God knew and used them and allowed them to sell Joseph into slavery for an ultimate purpose, an ultimate good, even though it wasn't good that he was experiencing. For these two years have the famine been in the land, which there are five years remaining, in the which there shall neither be earring nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity of the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Now, they sold him into slavery, but what does Joseph say? Verse verse 8, For now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So here was a man of character, one who resisted temptation and was thrown in jail for it. But this is a classic Romans 8.28 story and principle. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Do you have that kind of character? So Esau was weak in character. Joseph was strong in character. Let's take a look at the evangelist Timothy. Philippians 2 and verse 21. Philippians 2 and verse 21. The uh, letters to Timothy are very inspiring, very encouraging. They're exhortations in those two epistles that will help us individually if we take them to heart. Philippians 2, looking at 1 Timothy, Philippians 2 and verse 21. For all seek their own and are not uh, the things which are Jesus Christ. But you know the proof of him that as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. Now, in the New King James, it says, For all seek their own, uh, not the things which are of Jesus Christ, but you know his proven character, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. So the New King James has in verse 22 that you know his proven character. So Timothy was someone who was dependable. He had characteristics that exemplified or honored God. Now let's take a look at one more, Acts 13, verse 22. Acts 13, 22. We can certainly look in the Bible for role models and realize that every individual, all the heroes of the Bible except Christ had great weaknesses. And so, if you find any of us with weaknesses, don't be shocked. And if you have weaknesses, don't be shocked. But realize that God has called you to grow in godly character and not to compromise. 
and to develop that strength that includes the four steps of the willingness and ability to understand right from wrong, the commitment to choose living righteously, to resist all temptations, to compromise, and to practice righteous living until it becomes internalized, until it becomes habit. Well, what about King David? Acts 13, verse 22. Here, uh, Paul is addressing the Jews at Antioch, and he's talking about uh, King David and how King Saul had to be removed. Verse 22, And when God had removed him, King Saul, God raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. So what does that mean, a man after my own heart? Well, it tells us in the rest of the verse, which shall fulfill all my will. Well, here is one of great character, King David. God is going to use him in tomorrow's world and the kingdom as a king over all of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel. So now we've seen the examples of weak and strong character. How is God creating character in you and in me? It's a lifelong process. Many in the world follow cheap grace. They say God has saved us and there's nothing we need to do. But God wants us to cooperate with him and he builds character, creates character in us by our cooperation. He does not do it by fiat or by command. That is, just by saying the command and all of a sudden we have godly character. It doesn't work that way. We have to learn by choosing to follow God's way and His righteousness. And we as humans are required to choose one way or another. And so that brings up the role of choice and free moral agency. We already saw that as part of of those four steps in character development, that we must choose what is the right way. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy 30 and again see what the Protestant world does not at large totally understand, or if it understands, does not practice in its theology. As if you're, you're saved, then there's nothing you need to do. But God says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, Blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your seed may live, that you may love the eternal your God, and that you may obey his voice, and that you may cleave unto him. For he is your life and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the eternal swore unto your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. God requires that we choose. We choose to exercise our will. God has given us a will. We can choose to go this way, or we can choose to go that way, or we can choose not to resist temptation, which we're making a choice. Sometimes we don't think we're making a choice by not making a choice, and we are making a choice. But God says that we are to pray, make a choice, and to pray in Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done. So when I'm struggling with a question, and I don't know which way to go, I pray, look, your will be done, not mine. How often do you pray that? I mean, not just as the general outline prayer, but how often do you pray that when you're facing a problem, when you're facing circumstances in which you must make a decision? Do you really acknowledge God in all your ways? 
Do you really ask that His will and not yours be done? That's a part of frustration. We have the article in Tomorrow's World, Fear, Frustration, and Faith. Frustration comes about when there's a struggle between your decision-making processes. You're, you want something and you can't have it. And you're frustrated. How do you solve that problem? Well, you say to God, your will be done and not mine, just as Jesus did. I've done that so many times, and when there is a struggle, when there is a frustration, and when I surrender my will to God's will, I have peace of mind. I am no longer frustrated. I won't ask you to raise your hands. How many of you are frustrated today? (laughs) Well, there's a solution to that, and it means choosing to do God's will. Let's take a look at Psalm 40 and verse 8, because it has to do with happiness It has to do with character development, and it's fundamental to having the very mind and nature and character of God. Psalm 40 and verse 8, and this is actually a uh, messianic psalm. It has to do with the prophecy of Christ and uh, his attitude. Psalm 40 and verse 7. Psalm 40, verse 7. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O O my God. Your law is within my heart. He delights to do God's will. And when you surrender to do God's will, you will be happy. It's, uh, you know, the old story, Garth Brooks' uh, old country-western song, you know, Unanswered Prayer. He, he, He sings this song about how he saw this beautiful young woman and prayed that he could marry her and God didn't answer her prayer he, he his prayer he didn't marry her and then he saw the same beautiful woman many years later and she was des- she was um, really uh, had abused herself and uh, just didn't have a very good character and he he sang the song thank God for unanswered prayer well God did answer her prayer the answer was no, you better not marry this woman because uh, she doesn't have the right character for you. So we pray that God's will be done. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Remember, uh, this whole key of seeking God is, is, is a part of that character development. We heard Mr. Meredith's fine sermon, excellent sermon last week. Do you seek God? That, that relationship. Every problem, we all have problems every day, and, and uh, you know, as I've said before, when we go out the door or I have a question about anything, and I'm with my wife, she says, well, let's pray about it, and uh, led me to, uh, in one of the articles in the Tomorrow's World magazine, the telecast, that when you are worried or you have fears or frustrations, pray about it. Pray about everything that worries you was one of the keys, vital keys to happiness, I believe, in my article and in the telecast. You pray about everything. You seek God, and you will find that your character will grow into a godly nature. Our relationship with the Father and with Christ is essential to the very purpose and meaning of life. I'll just quote these. You don't need to turn them or turn to them. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we appear also with him in glory. Christ, who is our life. 
Godly character requires that intimate and close relationship with our Savior. John 8 and verse 12. I have uh, on my wall in my office uh, uh, a uh, tapestry given to me by uh, someone. And I like lighthouses. And this is by uh, Kincaid. What's his first name? Thomas Kincaid. I like his paintings. And uh, he often does lighthouses. And I, I have this. Uh, tapestry with a lighthouse on it. Uh, I see someone shaking her head. She doesn't like Kincaid. Okay. Uh, like that artwork. <clears throat> but I do. And this particular one, John eight twelve says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. When you follow Christ, you have the light of life. Not of darkness, but of life. Let's turn to Colossians 1 to take a look at another one. We're talking about the intimate relationship that we have as a key to growing in godly character. Colossians, the first chapter, Colossians 1. And it requires an intimate relationship. In fact, we've had sermons on that in the past. Our living, loving Savior is one of them. And uh, Colossians 1, here, verse 16 speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Christ, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. You realize you were created for Christ? You were created for God the Father? That's one of the deeper meanings, one of the deeper purposes for your existence. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. All things were created by Him and for Him. What an awesome privilege that is to belong to God's royal family. And, of course, we are going to be like him. We are going to become love. We are in the process of having a nature that is divine love, that consists of divine love. Now, there are those who are lacking character. We've talked about will and making choices as a part of the character process, character development process. There are those who lack character because they're not exercising their will according to God's way of life. Let's turn back to a few verses here in Proverbs that show weak-willed people and strong-willed people. Now, again, a strong will can be channeled in the wrong direction. The strong wills must be channeled into the right direction. My, uh, I shouldn't say, I was going to say my, Sweet wife is very sweet, but she does have a strong will. And it's channeled in the right channel. That's the key. And I appreciate that greatly. She helps me and gives me very wise counsel many times over. Proverbs, the 16th chapter, Proverbs 16 and verse 32. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that rules his spirit than he that takes a city. This is an example of character. Someone who can control his nature, his human nature. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that rules his spirit than he that takes a city. 
Proverbs 24, verse 10. Go ahead a few pages to Proverbs 24 and verse 10. Do you lack character or do you have this kind of character that you can control your anger? Proverbs 24, verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Again, perseverance is a part of the character we all need. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Well, we need character, the strength of character. Verse 16, for a just man falls seven times and rises up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. Mr. Meredith quoted that last week, Matthew 24, 13. He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Perseverance is the sixth law of success. Stick to itiveness. Stick to it. Stick to it. Iveness. There we go. <laughs> Stick to itiveness. <clears throat> All right, got it. Tongue twister for our spokesman club and our leadership classes that are starting after the feast, which uh, here in Charlotte we'll look forward to those. A just man falls seven times, but he doesn't give up. He gets up again. I Means seven times. Say, well, after the sixth time, I give up. No, you keep going, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. One more here, uh, Proverbs 25 and verse 28. He that has no rule over his spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. So we all need the strength of character. There are many quotations about character and descriptions of character. President uh, Dwight Eisenhower stated this, the qualities of a great man are vision, integrity, courage, understanding, the power of articulation, and profundity of character. Lyndon Johnson, I guess, didn't like newspaper reporters, so he said this, the fact that a man is a newspaper reporter is evidence of some flaw of character. Abraham Lincoln said, Character is like a tree, and reputation like its shadow. The shadow is what we think of. The tree is the real thing. And then uh, this is by Booker T. Washington, American educator and civil rights activist. Character, not circumstance, makes the person. And again, sometimes we let circumstances dictate our reaction rather than having the character to react to adverse circumstances. Character, not circumstance, makes the person. Uh, Karen Hartz, who is a coordinator for Character Counts, uh, Michael Josephson in the Los Angeles area has a foundation uh, that revolves around Character Counts. When we lived in Pasadena, we'd often listen to uh, Michael Josephson, a 90-second or 60-second commentary on radio. And he'd give this very interesting story about someone who uh, resisted temptation or someone who came, overcame a disadvantage or someone who uh, exemplified character in one way or another. And uh, this uh, coordinator of uh, his particular agency and character counts said this to ex Karen Hartz, to exercise good character daily is to be morally fit for life. Ronald Reagan, uh, 40th President of the United States, had a little uh, unique way of determining uh, character. Quote, you can tell a lot about a fellow's character by his way of eating jelly beans, end of quote. 
he was uh, he enjoyed eating jelly beans. I think you you probably know that. So he had uh, certain humor. Martin Luther King Jr. said this: "The function of education is to teach one to think intensively and to think critically. Intelligence plus character." That is the goal of true education. So those are just some of the quotes that uh, give you a sense of what character is. And one of the most fundamental uh, definitions, which I think most of you have heard, anonymous, character is what you are in the dark. Character is what you are in the dark. And I know what that's like, you know, as a teenager and growing up, that Oh, I'm in the dark. No one's seeing me. I can really get away with it. Well, you don't get away with anything. Uh, God knows what's going on, everything you do. I'll just give you one more here. And this is from Colin Powell, former U.S. Secretary of State, speaking at the White House Conference on Character and Community, uh, June 19, 2002. Character means having a conscience, a conscience that is always present, that is always acting, that is always guiding you. It's an internal moral compass that is always pointing in the true direction, always keeps you on track, gives you the strength to stay away from the temptations that come along, reflects a set of ethical values that we believe in and we want all of our children to have, a set of ethical values that begins with honesty. If you can be trusted always to be honest, to do the right thing, you can then be counted on to be a fair person, always considerate of others, always doing unto others as you would have done unto yourself. So how would you describe your character? One who loves God and loves his neighbor? Or are you, are you one who is developing the fruits of God's Holy Spirit? And can you think about, well, where do I stand with the fruits of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of gentleness, of goodness, of faithfulness, of meekness, of self-control. Well, I have to pray about those, or at least one or two of those, that I'm a little weak in, and ask God to help me develop it. And I've, I know a couple of those, uh, thank God for the credit, I've grown in a few of those over the years. But those are fruits of the Holy Spirit, and they take time. The holy days reveal God's plan of salvation, and they reveal just how we grow in character as well. God's plan of salvation reflects how we grow in godly character. We all know that it starts with a Passover, that Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. We understand the investment, if you will. I don't mean to trivialize it at all, because you think of what time, energy, and life God the Father and Jesus Christ have put into the human family from the time of Adam and Eve until now, the time that they have put in you personally with their life and their time. Mr. Meredith has written in this latest Living Church News, September, October 2006, uh, just came, so you should be receiving yours in the next couple weeks. And uh, his feature article is, What Does Christ's Death Mean to You? He mentioned that. Uh, referred to that in the announcements. One of the quotes from his article, We need to realize our need for the shedding of blood to cover our sins and to realize that it had to be the shed blood of the very Son of God who created us and whose life is worth more than all of ours put together. 
So when you think of your life and who you are, what you are, you need to think of what God the Father has done in sacrificing His Son and what the Son has done in sacrificing Himself for you. If you were the only human being on planet Earth, Christ would still have to come and die for you. So don't minimize that personal sacrifice. It's like others who say, well, thinking of the Pharisee and the publican, the publican said, well, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, I'm just like all the other sinners around, so please be merciful to me. You justify your sins by saying, you know, I'm just like everyone else. I'm just a sinner. So it kind of justifies himself, uh, that those that say that, not the, the public, because in the Greek, the apparently, and I need to confirm this, Mr. Amen can do that for me, God be merciful not to me, a sinner, but the sinner. In other words, I am responsible for the death of Christ. And they were cut to the heart on the day of Pentecost when Peter said, you have crucified Jesus who is Lord and Christ. He said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let's always think of that, as Mr. Meredith pointed out. What does Christ's death mean to you? Always remember that it's the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin, as he says in 1 John, the first chapter. So godly character begins for adults at that stage when someone repents. You can teach character, good character traits to your children as you're growing up. But everyone must come to the place in his or her life where he sees that he or she has that rotten human nature. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or desperately ill, as one of the translations has it. That we see, uh uh-oh, it wasn't just my human nature. You, You divorce human nature from your identity. No, you cannot do that. You don't say, my human nature is bad, therefore, you know, I'm okay. My human nature is okay. No, you are human nature until you replace that human nature with divine nature and ask God to do it through you and through Christ and through experience. So the holy days do help us to understand that Christ is our Passover and we repent. And that was the very first word when Christ went out preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God in Mark 1. Verses 14 and 15. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's take a look at 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, because even though we have repented initially, we need to make sure that we continue to be teachable throughout our life and are willing to change, to overcome, and to grow. And if we fail and we fall down, as they says a righteous man falls seven times, but he gets up again and he goes forward. But we must always think about godly sorrow. There are those who get depressed and they're very sorry about something they've done. But they're not sorry towards God. They're sorry towards their own feelings of failure. They're sorry towards their own miserable circumstances. They're sorry because of their own um, emotional uh, lack of control. But they are not sorry that they have sinned against God to the point that they are motivated to change. 
And that's what godly sorrow is all about. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Verse 10, 2 Corinthians 7. For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world works death. You know, a lot of people are sorry. They're sorry they're caught. They're sorry they're in prison. They're not sorry for the reason that they're in prison. They're not sorry for uh, the crimes they've committed. They may give it uh, lip service, but are they really committed to change? And verse 11 shows us the commitment to change that is a part of godly sorrow. For behold, the selfsame thing, you be sorrowed after a godly sort. What earnestness or what carefulness or what diligence it worked in you. What clearing of yourselves or what earnestness to clear yourselves. What indignation. You've heard about righteous indignation. You're, you're righteously indignant about evils and injustices in the world. And you cry and sigh for those injustices. And you want God's kingdom to come. What fear, what alarm. You realize, uh-oh, I'm headed for the lake of fire unless I turn around. And you choose a godly fear, not a fearfulness that leads to disbelief in God, but a godly fear that leads to action and overcoming and drawing closer to God. What vehement desire or vehement longing. It's a positive step forward. What zeal, what revenge, what concern. In all these things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So brethren, always pray for the ability to repent. Even though you've been baptized years ago, you must always be committed to have repentance until the return of Christ. That way you will be teachable. That way you will be able to grow. That way you'll be able to change. You'll be able to identify flaws in your character and work on them and with God's help overcome them. We know that the days of unleavened bread teach us to put out the leaven of malice and wickedness and to put in the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, to put overcome human nature and to imbibe and to internalize godly nature. I won't go in there, but Revelation 2 and 3 uh, talk about that in Revelation 21, 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So we know that the days of unleavened bread teach us that element of character growth, that we must grow and overcome. We must replace human weaknesses with godly divine strengths. And we have to identify those areas in our life. When we were at Ambassador College years ago, uh, Mr. Herbert Armstrong had read the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. And so some of us, uh, many of the college students, were encouraged to read uh, the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. One of the areas in his uh, autobiography was a program that he instituted to develop various characteristics. And he had a little chart, and you see that in his autobiography. He'd have uh, the various characteristics of pride, silence, uh, patience, and a listing of about 15 or 16 characteristics. And so he started off working on one at a time. He said, okay, this week I'm going to work on silence. Hmm. Um, appropriate silence, that is, of course. And if he messed up and, uh, and he committed a, a, a faux pas or a flaw and didn't keep uh, silence when he felt he should, then he put a little mark on maybe it was Wednesday. 
But then the next week, he would add to silence the next characteristic, maybe honesty. And so, all right, he would check himself every day. How have I been honest to myself? I've been honest to my neighbor. And then he would go on with the next characteristic, of pride or whatever those characteristics were. Silence, patience, or honesty. And so you can teach character. You can teach those characteristics that are moral, that are biblical, that are godly. And we have to focus on that. But we must overcome our character flaws and overcome Satan and self and society. And, of course, how do we do that? Let's turn to Second Timothy, the first chapter. Second Timothy, the first chapter. It's with the power of God's Holy Spirit. Second Timothy 1 and verse 7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The word for sound mind is sophorismos, uh, which, according to Vine's Expository Dictionary, uh, is the saving of the mind from sows contracted to. Um, it can also be translated discipline, as in the revised uh, version. So, and I've given a sermon on uh, discipline. You can uh, get that out of the church library, number 349, the gift of discipline. So we need that power from God. We need that gift of love and of power and of sound-mindedness, the gift of discipline. And, of course, the Apostle Paul exercised discipline. I won't turn there, but 1 Corinthians 9, 27, uh, when he said, Thus I fight not as one who shadow boxes, but I discipline my body, he said, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, and bring it into subjection, lest after I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Well, we have to practice discipline, godly discipline. We have a responsibility to teach our children discipline and character. Colin Powell, in that same uh, conference on character and community, talked about teaching character to children. He said, teaching, learning character begins in the home. Just as a child learns language only from those immediately around him or her, his family and her family, the child also learns behavior. What is expected from that child, from the adults who are around that child in the earliest months and years of life? All the experience that has gone before in that family comes to bear on that child. And that child has passed on to him or her the expectations has passed on to him or her the expectations of all those previous generations. If those expectations are high, the child will learn early in life that he must reach, she must reach toward those expectations. Are you parents teaching your child expectations, that is, having a vision, setting a goal? I've told you this story before, but both my parents worked when I was a little boy in New London, Connecticut. And so I would go to nursery school. That would be uh, kind of day school today, I suppose, a half day at uh, nursery school. It was at Chapman Tech High School. And uh, so after that year of uh, nursery school, I graduated on to kindergarten. So I went to kindergarten, and in kindergarten, my sister, one year younger than I, went to nursery school, and mom sent me uh, on one rainy day with an umbrella to get my little sister, and I felt like such a big boy. I was getting my little sister at nursery school and bringing her home, just a couple blocks away. But, you know, at the end of the kindergarten, I'd already been to school two years, and what does mom say, Richard? 
you know, uh, you've got high school ahead of you, and uh, after you graduate from high school, you're going to go on to college. And I said, what? I mean, I've gone to school two years already. I've got 12 years of school ahead of me through high school, and I'm supposed to go to college after that? You know, that was <laughs> 12 years of school ahead of me. You know, I just finished kindergarten, and now I've got 12 years of school. And then you say, I've got to go to college after that. Well, she planted that expectation in me, and when I graduated from high school, no big deal. I just went on to college. I expected to. She gave me that expectation when I was graduated big time from kindergarten. So we do give our children expectations. What qualities do we teach our children? Again, Deuteronomy 6, you know the verse 7, you shall teach them diligently. That is God's words to your children shall talk of them. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be frontless between your eyes. That's Deuteronomy 6. You can read verses 6 through 8. The Greek writer Plutarch in the uh, 1st and 2nd centuries A.D. stated this, Character is habit long continued, and if one were to call the virtues of character the virtues of habit, he would not seem to go far astray. And that's from his essay on the education of children. We know in our youth camps that our children are coming along, that they are developing interest in God's way of life and in the seven laws of success and in the laws of radiant health. We know that one of those laws of radiant health is to maintain a positive and tranquil mind. And I know when I read that from Mr. Meredith's booklet many years ago, that helped me through I don't know how many times of uh, test and trial and even this morning, I would say, maintain a positive and tranquil mind. So I don't know how many times that has helped me over and over again when you face challenges. Maintain a positive and tranquil mind because God has given us a sound-mindedness and he's given us a spirit, character, that we can have patience, we can have self-control, we can have temperance, we can think about the spirit of truth, the spirit of love. We just read 1 Timothy 1 and verse 7. Uh, let's, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. Uh, let's look at verse 6. 2 Timothy 1 verse 6. Wherefore I put you in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God, which is in you by the putting on of my hands. Again, that takes action. And uh, Mr. Meredith, I remember years ago talking about the various uh, positions of prayer, lifting up, you know, your hands to God, talk about Solomon standing in the court and lifting up his head in the temple, sometimes prostrate on the floor, praying, other times kneeling, other times while you're walking, being instant in prayer. That's a life lifeline with God. You have to do something to stir up yourself. And uh, I know you've heard me before so many times, but I sometimes when I get so tired and lazy and I'm in the shower, and, oh, this is just so good. I think I just enjoy the shower. Then I have to stir myself up, and I say, drive, 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 and get my blood going and get my, my emotions stirred so I can move forward rather than just be lazy. So we have to stir ourselves up. And when it says stir up, that is to fan the flame, is the meaning behind it, behind God, that takes action. 
Now, our former association would take umbrage at that by saying, oh, hey, wait a minute, that's, that's uh, salvation by works. You have to do something. That's legalistic. Well, I tell you, if you take all the action verbs out of the Bible, uh, you're going to have quite a different Bible. <laughs> but we have the key of growing and overcoming, of course, is that relationship that we have with Christ, Galatians 2.20. And also, let's turn to Philippians 2, which again is uh, a parallel to Galatians 2.20. And it's one that has helped me because you realize, well, how weak in character am I? How strong in character am I? How am I going to grow and overcome and become more like Christ? This is a key verse, Philippians 2, verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh Uh-oh, you have to do something. But here's the key. The next verse is the key. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his own pleasure. But God does not do that apart from your will of wanting him to do that. So you ask him to fulfill that particular principle. Please grant me the will, just as we read back in Psalm 40, where the Messiah says, I delight to do your will, O God, your laws within my heart. He will give you the will to do and to do, to accomplish, to practice of his good pleasure. And, of course, one of the areas of answered prayer is that we do those things that are we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight that's another little bible study some of you might look into what what pleases god so god wants us to grow spiritually we have to have that vision we have to look forward to the future but we also realize that we fall into pain and suffering at times and god allows us to suffer It's one of the big questions. Why does God allow that? Well, because He's given human beings a choice. We already read that in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I set before you life and death. And some of the choices we make, we pay the penalty for those wrong choices. Let's just take a look at that in Galatians 6, because it's such a a key principle of life. Galatians 6, verse 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. There's cause and effect. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting, life everlasting. Let us be not weary in well-doing, but in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As Mr. Meredith was exhorting exhorting us in the uh, announcements to be giving and serving at the Feast of Tabernacles. And of course, at all times, it says here in verse 10, that as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men. Let's turn to James 1. You know that one when it comes to suffering. But you see, suffering has, has a role in character development. And what is that role? Turn to... Uh, James, the first chapter. And you know this very well, James 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience, but let patience have its perfect work, 
that you may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. Jesus said, Become you therefore perfect. Be perfect. Matthew 5, verse 48. So, when we go through trials, when we go through suffering, it adds to a characteristic, a godly characteristic of patience. And let patience have that perfect work. It is contributing to your faith, but the trying of your faith work patience. So that helps us to have more of the very character, the very mind of God. And when we go through trials, we need to count it all joy. Perseverance produces character. Let's turn to Romans, the fifth chapter. Romans 5. <clears throat> Joseph was in prison, and it must have been a real test to him. But when we go through tests and trials, pray that God will give you encouragement. Oftentimes I may be discouraged. I ask God for encouragement and that I can encourage others. And he does. Maybe not immediately. But through God's Spirit, we have that characteristic of godly nature, which is his divine love. Notice that in verse uh, 3 of Romans 5. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, writes the Apostle Paul, also knowing that tribulation works patience. Or in the New King James, that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, or in the King James experience, and character hope. So perseverance does help produce character, and character hope. So let's realize, brethren, that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ have already been perfected in character, and we are in the process of being perfected, and sometimes it takes suffering for us to grow in faith, to grow in patience, and to grow more in the mind and the nature of Christ. Because, as Peter said in 1 Peter 4, when we suffer, joy, rejoice in that because you are partaking in Christ's sufferings. So learn that. But let's turn now here <clears throat> to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, Hebrews 12, and understand that many of those that have died even the past few years, that God has worked with them, and I've mentioned this before, but I know many of you have seen some of our brethren <clears throat> dying of cancer, and I know of two individuals that come to mind immediately and know that when I talked with them, they had maturity. They had spiritual character far beyond me. And I presume that the suffering that they experienced contributed to that perfection of character. Here it says in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, uh, starting with uh, verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And we know that those people are dead, but though that spirit of those individuals combined with the resurrection, they will be glorified, they will be immortalized, as it tells us in 1 Corinthians the 15th chapter. Let's turn to Ephesians 2 and verse 8. Ephesians 2. I've got two scriptures here to go. 
actually I have about 10 or 15, but I'll cut it down to two here. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. Now, the Protestants hang on to these group of scriptures as if it belongs to them. No, it doesn't belong to them. It belongs to us. It belongs to everyone who understands the true meaning of Ephesians 2 through uh, verses 8 through 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that of not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The grace and the faith are gifts of God. We have our own faith, but we need Christ's faith as well, as Galatians 2.20 tells us. Not of works, lest any man should boast. We are not saved by works at all. But we must have works, and how do we have works? Verse 10 tells us, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. The Greek word here for workmanship is poema, P-O-I-E-M-A, a Greek word which, from which the word poem uh, is derived. It means things that are made or his workmanship. John R.W. Stott in his commentary on Ephesians writes, writes this, What are we now? We are God's workmanship, poema, his work of art, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus. Both Greek words, created and uh, workmanship, speak of creation. So God is creating us in Christ Jesus under good works. So brethren, what is God's greatest creation? Let's turn to Psalm 51. God is creating in us His work of art, His masterpiece. What is God's greatest creation? You are God's greatest masterpiece. You are His work of art. And God is a faithful creator. He said in 1 Peter 4, verse 19, Let those who suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in doing good as unto a faithful creator. Do you trust God to create in you His perfect righteous character even when you suffer? He says He is a faithful creator and you must continue to do good. That's 1 Peter 4, 19. So you trust God to create in you His holy, righteous, godly character. So brethren, let's cooperate with God. Ask Him to create in you His godly character and nature. Teach your children godly characteristics and true values. Practice the way of God's commandments. Pray that you will be a man or a woman after God's own heart who will do all His will. And pray, as King David did here in Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me your nature, your character, Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners shall be converted to you. Praise God that you and I can become God's masterpiece, His greatest creation.